Thank you, Mike. Good morning, guys. How are we doing? Y'all aren't sick. I'm not sick. We're here. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, Wade said that I might preach a sermon I've already preached. I wouldn't do that to you guys. That's lame. Uh, I would never do that. It's just not, it's just not as fun as uh, uh, writing a sermon on Thursday and then preaching it on Sunday. And so, uh, so yeah, we, we all found out that uh, I, I was going to be preaching on Thursday. And I'm actually preaching in a couple of weeks. Um, but through 1 Corinthians, which we've been through, uh, we've been walking through, and instead of just trying to pull that text out of context and preach it out of order, which we actually did one time, and it was really weird. And so we're never gonna do that again. So instead, uh, the elders were like, hey, why don't you just preach uh, something from the Psalms? And so I'm preaching one of my favorite Psalms, which is Psalm 63, uh, one of my favorite Psalms, and I hope after we're done, it'll be one of your favorites as well. Uh, but with that, since I wrote it on Thursday, I, that doesn't mean that I have any sort of uh, flashy intro story or anything like that. We're just gonna get straight into the text. Some of y'all might prefer that. So no story from my childhood. <laughs> but here's what Psalm 63 is all about. I do wanna give you this before we get into it. Here is, here is what everything I talk about today is all gonna be about. And here's what I think everything David is saying in Psalm 63. This is what it is all about, which is, only God can satisfy your longing. Only God can satisfy your longing. That's the answer to the quiz at the end, so book aren't that, okay? Uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in to Psalm 63. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're good. Uh, I thank you that you care for us. Um, Lord, that you sustain us in difficult times. And I thank you, uh, Lord, that... Uh, I thank you for this church, for this gathering of believers. I pray, Lord, when, when we have problems with the stream, problems with the mic, or uh, people are sick and plans change, we'd recognize that this is an, an entertainment venue. We're not a, a production. Rather, we're your church. And so this stuff doesn't really matter that much. So long as disciples are made, your word is proclaimed, and you're glorified. I pray that would be our vision, that would be our goal. I pray that you would be glorified as we walk through Psalm 63, as we sing your praises, as we take communion together, and as we maybe even go to lunch after this together. We thank you for your grace to us. It's in Christ's name that we sing. I'm so used to saying that, that we pray, amen. You did sing as well, and it was in Christ's name that you sang as well. <laughs> Let's get into the psalm. It begins with this title um, that we, we, like to, we like to use. Uh, it says, the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's not just a subheading. That's, that's involved in the, in the canon of the Bible. And so we, we treat that as authoritative as well. And so we, we read a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so in case you didn't brush up on your Old Testament history before you came in to the service this morning, as one does, uh, a good question to ask before getting into this Psalm is, when was David in the wilderness? of Judah specifically, because that provides a helpful context for placing ourselves in the mind of David as he's writing this psalm. And there are two times that David was actually in the wilderness of Judah. The first time, well actually both times, he was being chased by someone trying to murder him. The first time it was King Saul, and the second time was his own son, Absalom. So it's good to be king, as they say. <laughs> but Psalm 63 is most likely referring to that second time that second time David fled into the wilderness of Judah, he was running from his own son, Absalom, who was trying to murder him. You know, family drama, I guess. And so David's being chased throughout the wilderness of Judah, 
with Absalom and his men trying to catch David off guard, constantly trying to, uh, to find him, constantly pursuing. David can't settle down and rest for a moment because that's exactly when his enemies will overtake him. And so you can imagine that David is probably feeling a little bit tired, a little bit weary, a little bit anxious and fearful, wondering maybe what he could have done differently in his life to avoid this outcome, his son trying to kill him. I mean, that's a really dark night of the soul. And with this in mind, he writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Right out of the gate, David is defining his relationship to God. He says to God, O God, you are my God. Not just a God, my God. Just like Kelsey Hollis is not just a wife, she's my wife, which means we have a relationship. We, have, we share in a covenant relationship with one another. She dwells with me, I dwell with her. I love her, she loves me. I delight in serving her. She delights in serving me. She delights in hearing me complain all the time, sometimes maybe, because she's my wife. And we have this covenant relationship with one another. And likewise, David is addressing his God with whom he has a covenant relationship where God has covenanted to be his God, to be his provider, his defender, his life source. And David has covenanted to serve his God, to be the Lord's servant, if you recognize that language from the Old Testament. And so because of this covenant relationship, when David is running for his life in the wilderness, David can do something that those who are not in covenant with God cannot do. He can go to his God and he can tell him of his need. He can cry out for help and expect that God hears listens, and cares for him. And so David prays, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I love how vivid this picture is. Really, it's just good poetry. Don't forget the Psalms are poetry. And it sort of helps you, uh, it helps put you in this place of desperation. So just imagine being thirsty. But then on top of that, imagine you're about to pass out. So it sounds like you're dehydrated. Well, the good news is you're in a desert where there's no water. No, that's a rough spot. That's a rough place to be in. That's a real, that's real sort of desperation. You need help and you need it quickly. And that's what David's communicating here. He's in desperate need. No doubt this is meant to mirror his experience in the wilderness. David would know a thing or two about this sort of desperation. And yet notice, what does he say he needs? He's not talking about water. He's not talking about food. What is he searching for in his present distress? What is he seeking? He says, earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, God, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As he's being pursued... And people are trying to kill him, and he's living in the wilderness. What David believes he needs more than anything is God. And this is what I so love about this psalm. It's why it's one of my favorite songs, because this really catches me off guard. Because when I think about what I turn to for comfort in times of suffering, God's lucky if he's on that list, to be quite honest. And David's saying that his soul thirsts for God. Not the stuff that God can give him. No, just God. Yes, sure, I, I turn to God in times of trouble, but I treat him like some sort of divine vending machine. I don't want God, I just want the stuff he'll dispense to me. 
I want the stuff that will comfort me. Just give me what I need to make my, give, give me the control so I can make my circumstances a little bit easier to deal with. But that's not David's prayer. Earnestly, I seek you, God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And so ask yourself, what is it that comforts you in times of trouble? What do you seek out when you are facing adversity? Our American culture is sort of built on this idea that you can weather any difficulty and satisfy every need if only you've got the right stuff. That's all you need, better or, or different stuff to make the problems and inconveniences in your life a little bit better, a little easier to weather the storm. That's how companies sell you stuff all the time. You have a problem, you have some longing unfulfilled, you just need better stuff. That problem would, wouldn't be a problem anymore. I saw a couple weeks ago a, uh, a car commercial that was terrifying because it's a man driving his car around a neighborhood and he's not really paying attention. He's like on his phone or something, whatever people do when they sit at green lights, uh, always distracted. And so he's not paying attention and he's driving towards a crosswalk. And there's this woman actually walking across the crosswalk and he has no idea. And just, just at the moment, right before he's about to rack up a nice manslaughter charge, his car slams on the brakes for him. And it's like Hyundai, you know. And what they're saying there is, hey, do you have a problem? Are you on the verge of like almost murdering people with your car all the time? <laughs> that sounds so stressful. That must be, jail sounds stressful too. And so buy a Hyundai. Don't have to deal with that problem. You just need better stuff so you don't have to deal with that sort of inconvenience. The air we live and breathe is that any unfulfilled longing or weakness or difficulty or suffering or thing you don't like can be alleviated by getting better stuff. You just need better stuff. But as we've all experienced, the stuff, it never satisfies. There's always a 2.0. There's always a new addition. There's always something else. Augustine of Hippo, or St. Augustine as many call him, writing his commentary on Psalm 63 over 1,600 years ago, same problem exists in his culture. He says, and we see what longings there are in the hearts of men. One longs for gold, another longs for silver, another longs for possessions, another inheritance, another abundance of money, another many herds, another a wife, another honors, another sons. You see those longings, how they are in the hearts of men. And men are inflamed with longing and scarce has found one to say, my soul thirsts for you, for God. For men thirst for the world and perceive not themselves to be in the wilderness of Judah where their souls ought to thirst for God. We are filled with longing and our longing becomes more apparent in times of trouble. But where do you turn to satisfy your longing? What comforts you in times of trouble? We see in Psalm 63, David cries out from the wilderness that only God will satisfy his longing. His thirst in the midst of the wilderness can only be satisfied by communion with God. And then he says, he tells us why in verses two through four. He says, so I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. 
So here he gives us reasons for why his longing can only be satisfied by God. When he's in this desperate situation, son's trying to murder him, there are clear reasons he turns to God for comfort. Three reasons I think he gives. Reason number one, that God is powerful. And then closely behind that one, reason number two, that God is glorious. And then he says that God's love is steadfast because your steadfast love is better than life. God's love is steadfast. And so he turns to God in times of trouble because God is powerful, glorious, and his love is steadfast. But before we get into that, I first want to clarify something. David talks about looking upon God in the sanctuary. What on earth does that mean? Like he wasn't in this room, if you call this a sanctuary. What's David talking about? And you might think he's talking about the temple, but that didn't exist yet because no one's built the temple because that's David's son that built the temple. And so instead, David's probably talking about where the Ark of the Covenant was held in Jerusalem during his reign, as we see in 2 Samuel 6, uh, 16 through 17, which says, as the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that's Jerusalem, Michael, or Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart for his dance moves. That's rude. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And so notice that when David is leaping and dancing before the ark of the covenant, it says that he was leaping and dancing before the Lord. And that's because the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Lord, represented the very presence, the dwelling place, the sanctuary of God among the people of Israel. And so I think what's happening here is David, as he finds himself in the wilderness of Judah, actually cast out from the city that bears his own name, cast out of the city of Jerusalem, far from God's sanctuary and presence in Israel, David thinks back to times that he has spent in the sanctuary of God where he is beheld, uh, beholding and considering and marveling at God's power, his glory, and considering the grace of God's steadfast love. And it's as if he's almost transported back to this place like he's having a vision. It sounds a lot like Isaiah's description of uh, God on his throne with his royal robe that fills the room. It's almost like this beatific vision of glory. And David recalls first that God is powerful. The first reason he turns to God in times of trouble is that God... It's powerful. Specifically, that God's ability to affect the world is on a different level than ours. So when you want it to snow on Christmas Day, what sort of power do you have? Apparently none, because it was 80 and sunny. <laughs> but God can arrange the stars to declare the birth of his son. Or when you're thirsty in the desert. If you're like David, and maybe you're thirsty for water in the desert, but there's no water, what can you do? Die, probably. That's what you can do. But God, can, God commands Moses to strike a rock twice and water gushes out in the midst of the desert, in the midst of the wilderness. So I could go on and on. But whatever sort of power you think you have to affect your circumstances, you are a puny nothing in comparison to the infinite, far greater than we can fathom power of God. And so David recalls worshiping before the ark which itself was a testimony of God's power to the nation of Israel because they carried it with them throughout the desert in the Exodus. Shows how God cared for his people in the wilderness and David considers and marvels at this power of God. And because God powerfully led the people of Israel through their wilderness, David goes to God in the midst of his wilderness. 
And then the second reason David seeks after God in his time of trouble is that his God is glorious. His God is glorious. That is obviously connected to God's power, even in the text there. But a God who is powerful but not glorious is, is sort of like a really talented artist who refuses to paint. Power with no display is not glorious. But our God is glorious because he delights to display his power. He delights to reveal who he is to the praise of his power and glory. And this means that God not only has the power to comfort David and not only has the power to preserve David's life, but God is a God who delights to do that sort of thing to the glory of his name. Because if God is only powerful, then though he could comfort David and though he could rescue David, he won't. But God has shown us that he delights to rescue and he delights to save. And so David seeks a God who is powerful and glorious in the midst of his distress. And this leads us pretty naturally to the third reason. The third reason David seeks after God in his time of trouble. Because what better displays to us the power and glory of God than his steadfast love. God's love is steadfast. God enters into a covenant relationship of love with sinful humanity. With people that he calls to himself. And in this covenant relationship, God promises to be their God, to adopt them as his own, to preserve them, to protect them, to satisfy their needs, to, to glorify himself through his relationship with these people. When people see the relationship that God has with these people, they'll go, wow, God ought to be glorified. What a magnificent God and magnificent Savior. He makes himself a loving father to them. He calls them his children. And because God has made a covenant with David, David can trust, even when people are trying to destroy his life in the wilderness, that he can cry out to God, and God will keep his promises according to the covenant that he's made. A love like that in covenant with the God of all creation, a love like that which sort of undergirds every aspect of your life is better than life, David says. Because you, to have all sorts of stuff and have breath and life, but to not be in covenant with God, to not be God's friend. That would mean a life lived with no hope of your longing ever being satisfied. Because remember, only God can satisfy your longing. David would gladly trade his life if it allowed him to remain in covenant with God. That's his point when he says God's steadfast love is better than life. What we see David doing in this psalm is entrusting himself to God. Because he trusts that God loves him and that, 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 trust, that he trusts that God will keep his covenant promises. And I'm not saying that's a very easy thing to do. That's very difficult to do. And trusting your life to someone other than you is hard. And trusting your hopes, your desires, your dreams, your welfare, giving someone else control of your life's outcome is an uncomfortable thing. Again, we tend to just want stuff. That's what we go to God for. We want stuff so that we can control the outcome. So we can have it our way. and we can, we can just sort of control our universe around us rather than asking God to take control of our lives. And it reminds me of a, when I started seminary, I, uh, I had a buddy who was a member of a church uh, that I was working for. And he asked me one day if I'd ever be interested in going to seminary. I hadn't gone to seminary yet. And we were at lunch. He was like, would you ever be interested in going to seminary? I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's really expensive. And at the time, Kelsey was getting her master's, and so we're paying for that. We're like, yeah, someday I'd love to have the sort of money to go to seminary. And then he said, well, what if someone else paid for it all? And at the end of it, you didn't know a thing. It was all just paid for. I was like, oh, yeah, I think I'd consider it. Yeah, I think I'd go to seminary. 
for sure. And so he told me to enroll. He said, I got it, just enroll, which was crazy. I was like, okay. And so I signed up for classes. They sent me a big bill to pay for the classes I'm about to take. And so I'm like, hey, here's, what do we do? How does this work? What happens now? I've got this bill, needs to be paid. And as we all know, I don't have it. And so he was like, hey, don't worry about it. You have a student account at the school. I'll just put money in there and they'll just take the money from there to pay the tuition. It'll just be in your student account. You won't even have to deal with a check or anything like that. It'll just be there. So yeah, I'm like, great, I trust you. That's gonna be awesome. And so as the tuition deadline came up, I checked that student account. Let's see if you put the money, zero dollars. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is fun. I've like organized my life around these classes. You know, I'm taking like, I have multiple jobs and they're kind of all organized around like that one o'clock class and all these different things. And uh, I would check like every day leading up to that tuition deadline, zero dollars, zero dollars. And I'm just like, uh, and it's a weird situation because he's being so generous. I don't want to call him and be like, where's my money? You know, <laughs> I can't, that's not great. And so I'm just like, oh, please, please, please. And sure enough, day before the tuition was due, the money was in my student account and everything worked out fine. But what was crazy was every semester, same thing. I'd send them my, they send me a bill, I send it to him, and he'd be like, all right, I'll take care of it. And I was like, come on. And then like the day before, it was like the last like 10 minutes available. He'd be like, boom, it's in your account. And I was just like, oh, this is horrible. But <laughs> over time, after I saw, yeah, he's good for it. Like he's actually doing this. I began to trust him more and more. I began to trust him as this sort of catalog of like stories where I know, yeah, I was nervous, but it was, it was eventually there and I didn't need to be so worried. That sort of helped me to trust him with the next payment and the next one. And it was like that all the way until I graduated. The more I saw my friend's faithfulness, actually faithfulness to his promise come to fruition, the more I trusted him and the less I checked the balance of my student account, although I still did check it every time. <laughs> it's hard to trust somebody else with your life, with your outcomes, but it's easier, just a little, once you can stop and meditate on how they've been faithful thus far. And so as that catalog of stories of faithfulness grows, so should your confidence in the faithfulness that they will show for the future. And David finds confidence and trust in the steadfast love of God, which has been demonstrated throughout his whole life. David's, at this point, a king, and he was a, he was a shepherd boy watching sheep to begin with. And God has told him, that, that was all me. I, I did all of that for you. And so as David has this catalog of faithfulness, he can trust God even in the midst of his distress and trust that God will again demonstrate his love in David's current distress. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now notice one more thing here. Notice how considering and meditating on God's power, glory, steadfast love, what does it produce? Worship. Produces worship. Some people fear that studying theology will somehow stifle their worship of God. But David shows us the opposite's true. True worship is fueled by theology, fueled by considering and marveling and experiencing the power, glory, and love of God. More, more on that in a second. Let's continue with verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you 
upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, this is certainly a contrast to where the psalm began, right? Like, and just remember, he was passing out. Now he's like, it's like fat and rich food from thirsty. Now he's saying he's satisfied. That's amazing. And I think this offers us a glimpse into what it is like to seek after God in times of trouble. The psalm is meant to sort of to teach us, to educate us about why we should go to God in times of trouble rather than seeking after lesser stuff to consume or stuff to satisfy us because only God can satisfy your longing. David says that when you seek God in the midst of distress, what does one find in God? Satisfaction and strength. Satisfaction and strength. First, David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Is he actually saying his stomach will be full of food? That's not what he's saying. He's not going to have like a plate of brisket appear before him. That would be awesome. But that's not what's happening. David is talking about something more important than our appetite or our physical hunger. He's talking about his soul. This, the longing that drives us, as Augustine mentioned, is, is a longing of the soul. That's something that food or water can't remedy. Satisfaction can only be found in God. Everything else will just leave you hungry. Often when people go through really difficult seasons, they, they, they come to know this personally. And what I mean is when they go through really difficult seasons, I mean heartbreaking seasons, like the loss of their spouse, the, the loss of a child, and they won't really feel like eating. Those sort of physical needs just sort of vanish in the background because their pain is something far deeper than appetite or hunger. It's a longing of the soul. And in that place, be it heartache or desperation or fear, David says that the Lord satisfies his soul as if he was feasting. Even more shocking, David says he's joyful. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The nighttime is the most dangerous time of day when you're on the run. When your enemy is dead set on killing you, going to sleep is not an easy thing, not a very restful thing. When was uh, Osama bin Laden's compound raided? At night, middle of night, 1 a.m., right? It's a great time to take your enemy by surprise, and this isn't like a, a new innovation. They've been doing this a long time, and no doubt David's aware of this. It's a great time to take your enemy by surprise. And so nighttime in the wilderness would be a time of anxiety and fear and constantly looking over your shoulder and thinking, you know, what was that sound? Am I about to, is my life about to end? Can you imagine just trying to go to sleep in that sort of condition? And yet he's joyfully worshiping. Again, our covenant relationship with God, with a God who satisfies, cannot help but produce joy in worship, which is crazy because, again, just notice what's on David's mind as his soul is being satisfied, as he's joyfully worshiping. He says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David is confident in worshiping in the darkest night of the soul because God has been his help and God has upheld him all along. David has a long catalog of faithfulness fueling his confidence. Therefore, David's soul clings to the satisfier of his longing. And when we seek God in the midst of distress, 
God offers us satisfaction when we would otherwise be left hungry. God offers us joy in the dark of the night. And finally, God upholds and sustains us when otherwise we might wither away. As David considers all the ways that God has been his help, just like the hymn says, all I have needed, the Lord hath provided, that's what David's singing here. David considers how it has been God all along who has upheld him. And so when he's concerned about his life failing now in the wilderness, what comforts him? That he's not and he's never been the one holding himself up. No, he says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, which means God's strong hand, God's right-handed apparently, which means that's his, his strength is behind David as he upholds him. God shows his power and strength when it seems we should fall by upholding us, by sustaining us when otherwise we would wither away. And so let me say again something about worship here. You're always gonna have a really hard time worshiping God, especially in the midst of a difficult season, when your eyes are closed to the grace of God, to all the ways that God upholds you in your life. A proud heart is not a worshiping heart because it has no one to worship but itself. If how you got to where you are today is a result of your hard work, your quick thinking, your right choices, your ability to adapt to difficult circumstances, your righteousness, if that's what's brought you safe thus far, then what reason do you have to worship God? Your understanding of how God is working in your life affects how you worship him. And nothing stifles your worship more effectively than taking credit for the work of God in your life. And let me add, nothing makes your heart more anxious in difficult circumstances than taking credit for the work of God in your life. If you're anxious, is, is it not because you think that the vehicle that's gotten you safe thus far, what's gotten to you where you are right now, has been you? And therefore, the vehicle that's going to have to keep you going through that wilderness, through that difficulty, also has to be you. It's all up to you. It always was and it always will be. That produces an anxious heart. No wonder you're anxious. That's a lot of pressure, especially since you know you're not so powerful. You're powerless. You're not glorious. You have no power to change anything. No power over your breath or your life when you'll die or the life of your spouse or your children or your job security or your freedom. Absolutely nothing. So what kind of hope could you ever find in someone like yourself? So powerless and so in control of nothing. You can't satisfy the longing of your soul. You can't even uphold yourself and you never have. When we recognize how it is God and God alone who has brought us to where we are, then when you face suffering, who are you going to look to for rescue? You won't look to yourself because you know that that won't do any good. You've never upheld yourself. So why would you expect that now? No, you'll do as David does. You'll worship God for how he has upheld you and cling to him, trusting that he will continue to uphold you according to his steadfast love for you. When you lose sight of the nearness and involvement of God in your life, you cannot help but to feel hopeless and suffering because, yeah, it's all on you. No wonder you're so anxious. No wonder you're so angry when things don't go the way you had planned. No wonder you're so afraid because it's all up to you. But the heart that recognizes God's work in their life is the heart that recognizes that God is who we most need because only God is glorious and powerful enough to uphold you in suffering. Finally, that brings us to verses 9. Through 11. 
But those who seek to destroy my life, says David, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So notice this is the first mention of an enemy in Psalm 63. We know that David has an enemy, since we know that he's in the wilderness in Judah, running away from an enemy. But David, this is the first time he actually mentions them. And David tells us that his enemy is not going to succeed. His enemy will be stopped and will go down into the earth, meaning he will die. And David, the king, will be left rejoicing. And what we're meant to see here is the working out of God's power, glory, and love. We talked about how we can trust that God is powerful, glorious, and loving, but now we actually see the follow-through. Now we actually see the money in the, account, in the student account, the bet paying off. You see David make this contrast between himself, a servant of God, one who's in covenant relationship with God, and this enemy who actually rejects the covenant relationship. And so remember what, this, there's this contrast that he's, he's trying to show you. Remember what David was doing at the beginning of the psalm? What was he seeking after? God. He was seeking after God. What's his enemy doing? Seeking after his life. Seeking to destroy his life. His enemies, they trust in themselves. And yet they have no power. They're overpowered by the sword. They, they think that they're so glorious, and yet their death is not glorious at all. They become zoo food. They become the food of jackals, of wild beasts, which is a really shameful way to die in this culture. But God's steadfast love will actually see David through. And David will rejoice in God, not in himself, just like everyone who swears by God or trusts in God. All of us will rejoice in him, not by ourselves, and the enemies of God will be silenced. And so God, in his covenant with David, promised to give David and Israel rest from their enemies. And so David sees that promise being fulfilled. Even though it looked like his enemies had the upper hand the whole time, God demonstrated his steadfast, steadfast love and delivered David from his distress. And God has made an even greater covenant with us through Christ. And in this covenant, God promises to deliver us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. And so for us, we know this psalm ends with eschatology, with this look into eternity far beyond David, where the king, the son of David, the true David, the son of God, will rejoice, and we will rejoice with him, and truth and rejoicing will reign from everlasting to everlasting, and all the counterfeit kingdoms and all the, all the things that we've chased after will be no more, and will be shackled to righteousness, no longer able to try to trust in anything but God, unable to sin. Our freedom will be restricted, per se, from the freedom to sin. And forever, we will only be able to be righteous by God's grace. And so David finds confidence in trusting God, even when his situation seems bleak, because he knows that God will deliver him. And we, in suffering, ought to conform our perspective around the reality that God will ultimately deliver us. That although we find ourselves running through the wilderness is what this life is. We're thirsty, we're hungry, and our God, we know, can nourish our soul along the way until our enemies are defeated, until the eternal rest is ours. And that's really what Psalm 63 is pointing to. 
That's really, that's, that's our text this morning. And I think I've said this a thousand times. David's clear point is only God can satisfy your longing. In times of trouble, in the midst of distress, in the darkest night of the soul, when, you know, your staff at your church is all sick, whatever. In the wilderness, only God can satisfy you. Only God can uphold you. Only God can rescue you. And so you need God, not stuff, not the stuff he dispenses. You need God. So seek after God. Turn to God, and he will surely nourish you. Now, there is a temptation for you then to walk away from this sermon saying, all right, well, therefore, I'm going to go trust God more. And my suffering will be easier. And I'll be more spiritual. I'll be spiritual like David. I'm going to go out and be just like David. Yippery. Then I'll be able to get through suffering easier. But if you're thinking that way, you're just depending on yourself. Still, you're putting hope in a better, more spiritual future you to satisfy you in the wilderness. I'm sure most of us, please, if we're honest with ourselves, recognize you're not going to even be as righteous as David as he is in the wilderness in Psalm 63. Speaking about me, just, just personally, I read this psalm, my spirituality, nowhere close to David's. But don't just hope in a more spiritual you. I promise that won't satisfy you. Remember, it's God and God alone who satisfies. Hope in God, not a better version of yourself. And so what does it look like to hope in God in the wilderness? First, it looks like believing in the gospel of Jesus. Looks like believing in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who hoped perfectly in God, was satisfied perfectly in God, lived the perfect life without sin, who was the true and better son of David, who hoped in God perfectly, trusted God perfectly, and was and is completely satisfied in God perfectly. Why did Jesus do all of this? So that you don't have to. Why did Jesus do all of this? Second Corinthians tells us, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So remember that, just think back to in the New Testament, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. You remember the story? And he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil comes out there to tempt him and it says that the, the devil saw that Jesus was hungry and he pointed to some rocks and he said, aren't you hungry? Don't you need something to satisfy your longing? Just turn these rocks to bread. What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What satisfies Jesus' longing? God, the word of God. And then the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to Jesus, all of these I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus recognizes and perfectly lives out what David in part demonstrated in Psalm 63, that only God can satisfy your longing. No food, no wealth, no honor, nothing. Only God. And Jesus has made a covenant with you, Christian, that is his righteousness and his steadfast love and God's steadfast love for him as his only son is all yours. In other words, Jesus was super spiritual like David so that you don't have to be. Jesus is completely satisfied by God and wants only God and the kingdom of God. And guess what? He has given you his spirit 
to make you seek after God, to satisfy your longing, and to desire the kingdom. It's all him. Don't hope in a better spiritual you. Hope in Christ who has done everything. I remember, uh, oh, I, I should have asked. Oh, I don't even see him here. But we had a baptism here. Camilo Ardila baptized uh, a, a woman named Bianca. And I will never forget. He said, this baptism today celebrates not what you're doing, but what has been done for you. Oh, I'll never forget that. So, so simple. It's so simple. I've never told him. So if he's in here, that has huge impact on me. That is the gospel that we stand in. And apart from what Christ has done, we have nothing and we'll never be satisfied. But the gospel declares that all things are yours in the work of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus, the sanctification, the transformative power of the Spirit, and the steadfast love of the Father. These are all yours through the work of Jesus, our Lord. So in the wilderness, whatever you're going through, hope not in yourself, but in the gospel of Jesus. And then, having believed in this gospel, since you have been given this new heart, feed the longing of your heart by seeking after God. Yeah, to nourish your soul. Devote yourself to remembering all the ways that God has established your footsteps. Devote yourself to prayer and asking God for help. Devote yourself to worship and praising him with joyful lips for the gift of his grace to you. And devote yourself to meditating on his word. Not as a means of achieving any righteousness, but to, to teach your soul what is most nourishing. Because these things nourish your soul. Nothing else will. Thankfully, we're spending all semester in theological equipping, which will be happening next week. Come and join us. We're talking about all the practical ways to grow in things like prayer and worship and these things. So come join us. Learn how to nourish your soul, right? Well, let's spend some time in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll take communion together. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your word. And uh, I pray, Lord, that we would trust uh, not in our own efforts to be more spiritual, that we would not trust in uh, sort of grading, having a scorecard and how we're dealing with suffering, but instead we would trust what Christ has done on our behalf. We would trust that you are a powerful God, that you are glorious unlike any other, and that you are loving, that you love us, that you've called us your own. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to nourish our souls on your word, on, on you, on your gifts we thank you for your grace. As we take communion now, I pray that we'd be encouraged uh, by the grace of Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.